I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Buy to let investors feel the heat. How young people should go about planning their finances for a lifetime. And can the humble ground rent provide steady returns in a volatile world? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm James Pickford, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of FT Money columnist David Stevenson, FT reporter Aliyah Ram, and special studio guest Stephen Johnson. All is not well in the world of buy-to-let. George Osborne dropped a bombshell on investor landlords in his summer budget when he announced radical curbs to the tax relief they receive on mortgage interest payments. The policy is set to transform the economics of the private rented sector for some owners by limiting the tax relief to those on the basic 20% rate of tax and taking it away from higher rate taxpayers. The changes are coming in gradually over three years from 2017, so some landlords have decided not to do anything about it yet. But there's no doubt this represents a fundamental recalibration of how buy-to-let taxes work. The chance has also brought an end to the generous wear and tear allowance, which meant investors could take off 10% from their annual rental income before calculating their tax bill regardless of whether they'd spent any money doing up their rental properties. From next April, only the costs of repairs that landlords actually carry out will be deductible, and they'll have to keep the receipts to show HMRC. So what does this do to the buy-to-let equation, and how are landlords responding? Here with me to discuss the issue is Stephen Johnson, Managing Director of Commercial Lending at Shawbrook Bank. Stephen, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Um, You've been speaking to landlords about how they're coping with this. Um, What's the mood? I think there's a, a dawning realisation, I think, on landlords of the impact of the changes. Um, myself, um, an accountant, a banker and a landlord. And when the changes came in, they weren't obvious the, you know, how they're going to directly impact the cash flows for landlords. And I think now people are starting to understand that. I think there's the human aspect of this comes in a little bit down the line. So actually, maybe I haven't got to quite worry about it today. And I think that's starting to change as people start to absorb it. And these changes are likely to hit at a time when interest rates are going up. You know, the impact's like to be compared. And so there is concern. Absolutely. Now, the National Landlords Association says all the Chancellor has done with this is simply add over £2 billion to the bills of tenants across the country. What is to stop landlords simply whacking up the rents to make up the difference? I guess market forces is there to calibrate that. Not all landlords have the same levels of debt. So is it assumed that there will be a uniform application in the market? But clearly the costs for landlords are going up. 
So one of their options is to try to you know, recoup that through higher income. But there are very different regional variations on what levels of rents are supportable. And you know, I think it's not obvious, but that's clearly an option. I think some landlords will be looking at potentially the configuration of their properties as their way to maximise their income by increasing the room space or, or you know, multi-letting. And that may be another way to improve their kind of yields. Some research that's come out has said that in a 2020 tax world, you would need a 6.5% yield on a property to break even on a 70% loan to value. That's Savile's research. Yes. So obviously it's going to put pressure on yields um, and landlords are going to look to their income to try and offset the additional costs. Yeah. Now you mentioned interest rates earlier. Uh, There are some very good mortgage deals around at the moment. Can landlords use these low rates to remortgage and and bring down their costs? They can. And again, in this environment, I think landlords just need to be very focused on their cash flow. So that is what can they maximise their income with and how can they minimise their costs? Some landlords will be looking maybe in that refinancing to transfer assets into limited companies. And we can speak about that in a moment. So there may be an opportunity to do both. What about simply selling up? Yes, I think that's uh, yeah, that will be an option. Uh, I think for the less committed landlord that maybe you know, hasn't done it as a profession is doing it as a bit of a sideline, this may be the tipping point. To deal with it and introduce the complexity of limited companies and other, it may just be not worth it. So yes, you could see that. I think you'll also see landlords probably selling low-yielding stock and looking to replace that with higher-yielding, whether that's a move into different regions or potentially, again, to sort of multi-let and HMO-type properties. And the so, reason to do that is that, that then the, the, the tax relief problem is less likely to cause difficulties on sure. those properties. Yeah, because your income is higher. Your costs, yeah. you know, your costs have gone up. Yeah. So how do I compensate? Let's move my income if I can. Yeah. So, so I think you could see that trend. You mentioned holding properties in a corporate sort of envelope. Um, there are some pros and cons to that, aren't there? There are. Pro-wise, on the face of it, you can continue to get the interest relief on the full debt because it's an expense before corporation tax. Tax rate will be less. It can assist also with longer-term family planning because you have options around limited companies and shares with families. The negatives, however, are it is more hassle administration. There are costs associated with it. The financing costs are likely to be higher because it's a more specialist market than the retail buy-to-let space. Um, And if you're looking to dispose of properties anytime soon, the tax effective tax charge is actually higher in a company than it is in an individual's name. So it's a complex Mm -hmm. area. But having said that, you can clearly see amongst landlords, one of their options will be to move to more incorporated structures. And of course, the other thing is you can um, switch it if you have a spouse on a lower tax rate. That may be an option for some people to switch ownership to that person. Is that correct? That can happen. Obviously, you need to be mindful of the impact on financing. So if it's owned in a spouse who's got no outside income, that may impact the financing options available to them. Quite common is people owning properties jointly, but under trust, one spouse owning the majority under a trust deed so that the income is accounted for under the spouse. But from a lender's perspective, you have both on the mortgage application. We've been talking a little bit as if all landlords are affected by this, but of course, a lot of them don't have any mortgage debt at all, do they? That's right. Two thirds of the private rented sector is owned by landlords with no debt. Having said that, the buy-to-let market is over 200 billion. Last year, there's 27 billion of buy-to-let lending. Current run rates, it's 33 billion. So this is a material issue. The vast majority of that is owned in personal names, not limited companies. So there is a big market that will be impacted and and it'll have a big impact on the cash flows. And that's the important message for landlords. It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. Thank you very much, Stephen. There's more on the pros and cons of buy-to-let investment in this week's FT Money cover feature. Still to come on the show, if you've no money to speak of, what's the point in worrying about investing? We look at the perplexing issues of personal finance for young people. First though, after a summer in which investors were buffeted by stock market gyration, 
tensions in China and volatility in emerging markets and the commodities sector around the world, investors might be forgiven for seeking safety in low-return but reliable asset classes. With apologies in advance for the mixed metaphor, you might not shoot the lights out with these things, but at least you won't lose your shirt. So this week in FT Money, David Stevenson, who's here with us now, he's author of our Adventurous Investor column, has been looking at one such type investment, a new vehicle called the Ground Rents Income Fund, which is a UK-focused real estate investment trust that invests in ground rents or freeholds. David, thanks very much for coming in. Um, Can you explain how this strange beast works? It's not a new asset class as such. It's Mm. a relatively new vehicle. Ground rents have been around for yonks, uh, absolutely yonks. In fact, the origins of it rest in Britain's landed aristocracy. So if you walk around large parts of London, they're all effectively owned in the leasehold structures by various people with Anglo-Saxon sounding names. Oh, sorry, no, Norman sounding names, actually. (laughs) They were part of the Norman conquering classes all those hundreds of years ago. So they tend to own large bits of it with names like duh, or or something in the middle of it. And we inherited that structure. And in fact, it's been modernised. That's effectively what's gone on. And leasehold structure has been around for as an investment class for pension funds are absolutely yonks. And the simple idea is nothing complicated. It is what it says it is. It's a proportion of the overall rent on the apartments, usually our apartments, not always, sometimes houses, but in the fund looks at apartments, basically. And effectively, it's a fantastic uh, credit risk, effectively, because there is absolutely no reason why anybody would default on their leasehold payments. You don't. You pay effectively a kind of low rent, yeah? Yes. And you get to retain ownership of your property, which you've probably got a vast mortgage on. And if you fail to pay that, they grab your property. So funnily enough, default rates are quite low on ground rent properties. Mm. So as an asset class, it's a very interesting asset class, but just don't expect to knock out the lights. You know, it's not going to blow the lights out. For you, um, as the author of The Adventurous (laughs) Investor, uh, does it seem a little bit pedestrian? (laughs) Well, it is is adventurous in one respect, because actually you've not really been able to access this as an asset class for mainstream retail investors. That's the important thing. In reality, it's not very adventurous, because in fact, pension funds have been doing this for young. Yeah, mm. they're big owners of the stuff. But they've never really been very successful structured vehicles for it. Now, there have been some unit trust-based, offshore-based schemes from companies I shan't mention who ran into a few problems in the past because they were open-ended structures. And mm. here gets to the core of it. One of the great opportunities I think that's out there is illiquid asset classes. The market is, because of the volatility that you mentioned, lots and lots of asset classes have been liquefied. God, it sounds like a little sci-fi term, <laughs> but effectively made very, very liquid. And people are favouring quality assets, you know, investment-grade corporate bonds, uh, investment-grade quality equities, or cash, or near cash, or short-duration U.S. treasuries, you know, Mm. virtually zip yield. And they're great, they're very liquid. But the problem is their returns are absolutely rubbish. Mm. And there's a real money to be made in illiquid assets. And if you're willing to sit tight on those assets for a long time, you can make decent money. Not fast money, but you can make 2 or 3 or 4% a year. So on that's average. what we're talking about. That's in, what we're talking about. It's, yeah, it's effectively, it? you're getting a premium for illiquidity. Because this is the problem. The open-ended vehicles that have been out there. What I mean by open-ended is there's a fund where you can buy and sell shares and the, the fund has to go up and down in size based upon the redemption. If you get a big push of people who wanted to sell their shares because markets are volatile, or stressful or just or people don't trust the manager and they can't sell those assets really really quickly because you can't just ring up oh hello I'd like to sell my entire portfolio of, of, of ground rents it doesn't quite work that way and negotiations have to happen and it's a de- detailed process whereas the fund that we're talking about is a closed end permanent capital vehicle on the London Stock Exchange mm. it basically has a fixed value it can add to that value by putting placings out on the market but it's a fixed some permanent capital vehicle and that allows you to participate in the class knowing 
that effectively, even if everybody heads for the door, I suppose a discount could open up, you know, and they might mm. they might eventually be forced to wind down the assets, but they could do it in an orderly fashion. Isn't there a, a risk here that UK property is already overvalued, particularly in London South East? Yes, but it's not really relevant to this fund. Yeah, that's the issue because it's ground rents. Yes, it's ground rents, yeah. and it's also not southeast based. So it's overwhelmingly actually northern based, oh, um, and it's yeah. things like new department blocks that are going up um, outside Manchester. They're being very cagey and very canny about what they've been buying. Um, so I, I don't actually look. I would not be suggesting absolutely anyone invests in residential underlying asset classes as a, as a liquid investment vehicle. Yes. I think it's a terrible idea personally, but I do think that this kind of vehicle does make some sense because you're playing on that illiquidity um, discount. And so you don't see any risks in the, in this investment? What, oh, no, there, you know? are, there, there are risks. The question is, I think you're being re- suitably rewarded for the risks. Yes. But the risks are, and in my column this week, I mentioned that you know, there's a wide bid offer spread. The manager could walk away, the manager could implode, and then you'd be forced to wind down the fund. Absolutely, and that has happened in the past. So there are risks. But the thing about it is, is that the underlying assets, there's not a lot of risk there. One of the risks, I suppose, is that the government could change the rules. I mean, I personally find the whole leasehold regime completely archaic, and being a bit of a kind of Republican, anti-aristocrat type, I would love us to get rid of the last vestige of our hereditary landholding system. But the reality of it is, even if they do get rid of it, they're likely to come to a compromise and it will be, be fought through the courts and through legislative rate framework. And actually, the people holding leaseholds are probably actually like to do fairly well out of it. Are oh, they'll be bought out of their leaseholds. So yes. I suppose there's a regulatory change that could happen. I don't think that's very likely. I don't, I don't actually think that will happen at all. And so there are fund-specific risks. Yes. And there are, I suppose what I call black swan risks, i.e. that somebody could just change the regime and you know force people to have different leasehold terms. And how long are you yourself looking to hold on to this for? Would well, let's just look. I mean, it's going to, I think I say in the column, it's 4% or a year a kind of job. Yeah, mm. and, you know, that's never going to set the world alight. It's inflation linked. I didn't mention that earlier. Very strong inflation linkage. Not not a pure inflation link. So some of the leases are renewals on 10 years, but it's a 20-year, 30-year investment. Interesting. Thank you very much, David. There's more in this week's FT Money on ground investments from David, along with news about the impact of the government's reduction in support for green energy funds, as well as the fallout from the biotech downturn. You can read online at ft.com slash money or on tablets using the new FT web app. Ali Aram, an FT reporter, has been looking at the options available to 20-something professionals as they set out on their careers. Ali, can we start with a big question? Let's say I'm 22 years old. I have a paid job, but not particularly well paid. Nearly all of my money goes on rent and living expenses, as well as servicing the debts I acquired when I was a student. Is there any point in me saving anything at all? Well, James... You're absolutely right to say that the situation is pretty bleak for young savers right now. So interest rates are stuck at 0.5%, bond yields are low, house prices are really high. New research was showing that you need about £41,000 a year to be able to afford a home or £77,000 if you're looking in London. But having said that, younger people are living longer, which means that their retirement needs are going to be much more significant. Many financial advisors will tell you it's more important than ever to save and it seems eminently sensible. What are the big things that savers need to think about when they're in their 20s? I mean, how do they start this decision making process? I think the thing that people need to think about that they don't think about is what will happen after they retire. So as well as saving for a mortgage, which people do think about, young earners do think about, it's going to be important to put away a certain amount for the future, perhaps in a slightly riskier kind of investment. So just mention the housing ladder. Are there any clever ways in which anyone could get around this, this fundamental problem of extraordinarily high house prices in large parts of the country and impecunious young graduates? 
process. The main thing is that young people really need to do their sums and work out whether it's possible to get a mortgage by themselves, whether they need to think about getting one with someone. So just some rules of thumb. How much of my salary if I'm 22, I wish, would I, would I should I be putting away? Patrick Connolly, who is a chartered financial planner, was telling me that he would say in your 20s, you're looking to put away about 10% of your salary for, and that's for retirement. So if you are also trying to save for a mortgage, that would probably be another 10%. And, you know, it's always good to have cash behind you in case you lose your job, in case you want to get married. I would say that and this is going to be much too much for most people. But if you can put away a quarter of your salary, that, that would be a good benchmark. You can do. Finally, you've been speaking to advisors in the course of researching this. Are there any classic mistakes that young people make when they're organising their finances? they not just advisors, but young people themselves that getting into debt for, for shorter term things like a wedding or a holiday can really set you back. Thanks very much, Alia. You can read the full story on young people's finances in this weekend's FT Money. You can also discover how timing is all important when deciding whether to transfer out of a defined benefit pension scheme, what the Facebook controversy over UK corporation tax means for your taxes, and the story of an entrepreneur who made his fortune out of pet shops. If you liked the FT Money Show, check out the weekly podcast by our colleagues in the FT Banking team. You can find it at ft.com slash podcasts every Tuesday. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Alia, David, and our special studio guest, Stephen Johnson of Shawbrook Bank. Goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.